world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Good evening. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. My name is Julie Kelly. Obviously, I'm not Dan Proft. Uh, I am a senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, where you can not just find my work, but the work of a lot of well-known, really smart people, smarter than me, such as Victor Davis Hanson, Conrad Black. We have columns by Selena Zito and Dennis Prager, uh, and some new up-and-comers maybe you haven't heard of. So check us out if you haven't. It's amgreatness.com. We are the antidote to the boring staid, stuffy, legacy publications on the right, like National Review and Commentary. I mean, if you need something to go to sleep to, you could check those out. But if you want refreshing commentary that talks about what's at stake at the country in the country right now, what's going on, where we go from here, then check out amgreatness.com. I'm going to start right with my first guest. Speaking of American greatness, Liz Sheld, who does our morning briefing if you want a full roundup of everything that you need to know that day, check out Liz's morning briefing at American Greatness. But she also works for a bunch of other outlets. She knows everybody. She knows everything. And so she is with us at the top of the show. Liz, hello. Thanks for coming on. Hello. Thank you for that fabulous introduction. Well, you are a fabulous I hope person. I can live up to it. I don't know. You better. If you, if you hear a click, you'll know that you didn't. So... Okay. So we're going to get right down to visit. So the big story this week on Capitol Hill, aside from the hearings, which I talk about a little bit later in the show, the hearings going on Capitol Hill that started today into the armed insurrection of January 6th, people armed with things like a can of pepper spray and um, a riot shield, I guess. Slingshot. What else did they have? Did they have a water gun? Water guns? They had a a finger gun. Somebody made a sign with their hand. Like of a gun, so were they yeah. also smushing people's heads? You know how you do that, like oh yeah, they were crushing their heads, <laughs> were like they on crushing Comedy my, Central. My Kids in the hall and crushing you and crushing your head, Nancy Pelosi. Now they're now they're not they're in jail without bond now. But you know, there you go. But you don't cr- You do not go sit at Nancy Pelosi's desk. How dare you? Apparently not. And the zip ties that actually they didn't bring in. The zip ties were already there. But apparently carrying them around and taking selfies with zip ties is now a That's felony. A, why were those there? No, I know that they were there. Like they were not brought in by the insurrectionists. But why were they there? I mean, I, I've been to the in the cap. I've been in that building before. Oh, it's course. very austere. You know, it, it, those people, first of all, the mean age of anyone elected official that's conducting business is like 90. So why would you need zip ties Some in case someone gets out of hand? I mean, a senator, well, a I congressman, like, okay. I don't know. Let's say, for example, Diane Feinstein keels over. They need the zip ties to tie her hands so they can, like, drag her out of the Capitol. I don't know. Put her on a stretcher. Well, it just seems unusual to me that they would just have zip ties like that lying around that building just due to the nature of 
that building, but I don't know. I mean, maybe sure there's a reason for it. A photo ops, obviously it works. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, we have the confirmation hearings of Merrick Garland, who was supposed to be on the Supreme court. Thank God he isn't, but considering what the Supreme court did this week, it's hard to see that he could do a worse job than Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett. So, but this guy, he seems like an okay guy. He seems like a Robert Mueller type, doesn't really know what he's talking about or grasp any of the facts. What's your takeaway watching the first few days here of uh, the wannabe attorney general? I thought it was interesting comparing the way he was pitched when Obama nominated him for a, for the Supreme Court. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, he's a moderate. You know, this guy's just bland. He's not making waves. He doesn't look like it, right? He's just kind of this old white guy. You know, he's not, you know, bombastic. He's, And we were pitched that, right, as to why we should accept him as the nominee under Obama in an election year when the Republicans controlled the Senate. He was just non-threatening, moderate, reason, clear-eyed, you know, full heart, clear eyes, whatever that saying is. <clears throat> and then we have this confirmation hearing, and he's asked some very important questions, and we were not getting the kind of answers you would get out of someone who is just a sort of middle of the road, moderate, even keeled person. We're getting answers that suggest that he, he has a, an agenda, Julie, he's an agenda. No way. So, no. I know. You know, moderate uh, level headed people don't compare what happened on January 6th to one of the most terrifying uh, terror attacks on American soil, which happened in April of 1995, which resulted in the death um, not just of Nancy Pelosi's uh, key, uh, computer, but 168 people, including 15 children under the age of six. Here's what Merrick Garland said yesterday. Advised the prosecution of the perpetrators of the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, who sought to spark a revolution that would topple the federal government. If confirmed, I will supervise the prosecution of white supremacists and others who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, a heinous attack that sought to disrupt a cornerstone of our democracy, the peaceful transfer of power to a newly elected government. Hmm. Right on. You know, I don't know how you can compare someone who murdered all the people that died at the Murrah building bombing, including, I believe he he placed the truck uh, or van right near the, the daycare center. The right. Right. So there's dead children, dead people, and you have a bunch of LARPers, live action role playing people on January 6th who, you know, were idiots. They shouldn't have done what they did. But, you know, I don't know how they were going to just literally disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. They had no weaponry. I mean, that's traditionally coups involve the bloodshed, bullets fired, explosions. They're they're violent things. They're not just people busting in. And once they're there, they're like, well, what do we do now? And then posting it on on Facebook and, and Twitter. Without masks. When the one time you can wear a mask and not look suspicious, there are people without masks taking pictures, live streaming. Hey, look at look at me. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a well orchestrated, thought out operation. That's just, you know, that's just me. But what a gut punch to the families who 
the of the survive you know the families of the people who died in the Oklahoma City bombing to have Merrick Garland sit there and compare the two. He he did again in this clip. I certainly agree that we are facing a more dangerous period than we faced in Oklahoma City at the, than at that time. I can assure you that this will be my first priority and my first briefing when I return to the department if I'm confirmed. Outrageous. No, it's ridiculous, you know, and imagine if you are someone who has been a victim of the riots this summer and your business has been the ground or perhaps you were beaten or robbed or one of the, a family member of one of the casualties mm-hmm. i believe over 30 people um were murdered over this the riotous summer of 2020 and you see the department of justice and they're going after the dude in a viking costume but not the person that just built down your family legacy your family business so uh, this is his outrageous. this is his first priority now we already know Two, more than 200 people have been arrested, uh, mostly with misdemeanors, trespassing, disorderly conduct, um, interrupting an official proceeding. I love that since when is disrupting the peaceful transfer of power, which isn't a law, it's not even like a thing, when is that, how, when did that become criminal? Well, since we both lived through the last four years, which was anything but a peaceful <clears throat> transition of power. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, is anyone buying this? That's what I have to ask. You know, are people buying this as, yes, this is outrageous. Yes, this is a singularly, out, you know, disruptive, outrageous event in the history. I hope this wakes people up if they're, um, you know, bought into the rhetoric around Biden and how we're going back to normal and things are going to be back to normal. And then we're seeing these partisan prosecutions. It's his priority. It's probably the only thing that they're going to do is some relation to this, which is cracking down on extremists, which is never defined. We don't have a definition of what the extremists are hunting are. Um, very, very vague, just just vague enough so that they can get what they need to get. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very disheartening because there is a job to be done in the Department of Justice, and apparently it's not going to get done. You know, it's not going to be the president's lawyer. Right. Let's check back with me in a year. Let's talk about that on the other side, because it's so ironic, Liz, that Merrick Garland's uh, agenda and thoughts are exactly what Joe Biden's and the Democrats are. So we'll talk about that after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. who not only is a good friend of mine, my podcast partner, and uh, works for American Greatness, where I am, amgreatness.com. Liz, we were talking about the continued politicization of the Justice Department. Of course, now all of them unpunished for Crossfire Hurricane, the Mueller probe, go down the list of things that they all got away with. Election fraud never happened. Bill Barr couldn't be bothered with that. So now they're emboldened. They're accelerating investigations into Republicans and now just your average Trump supporter. Um, but like we were, like you were, you pointed out, they pretend that the Justice Department is going to be independent. But oddly, Merrick Garland is repeating every single talking point from the Democratic Party and Joe Biden. 
coincidence? No, no, that's a feature, not a bug, Julie. Um, The idea that I don't, I don't think he's going to be independent. And I, you know, I, I don't really think that attorney generals are super independent anyway. I mean, Eric Holder described himself as Obama's wingman, and that was just perfectly fine. I mean, the bigger issue is that there's two standards. You know, there's a standard when there's a Republican in office. And then even, I guess there's three standards. There's a standard when the Republican's in office. There's a standard when a Democrat's in office. And then there's a standard when Trump is in office, which is a, not the same as when, you know, your average rhino, like a, even they, they didn't like the, you know, there was a lot of problems with W. Bush, but he, he didn't get this level of treatment that, Donald Trump got. So, you know, it was fine when they were together, you know, when, when Eric Holder and the attorney general was uh, the wingman for the president of the United States. Then when Trump got elected, <clears throat> it was not. And now we're, we're, it is again. So I think whatever the role of the attorney general is, it should probably be the same all the time. That would be nice I because I don't think anybody would mistake Jeff Sessions or Bill Barr, certainly not Rod Rosenstein, who really ran the Justice Department for the bulk of Trump's first uh, first term, only term. Um, anyone would mistake them as doing Trump's political bidding. If anything, they thwarted not just his political agenda, but but what was in the best interest of the American public, which was doing their jobs, number one, and holding accountable all the corrupt officials who ran that department under Barack Obama. Yeah, that's right. And again, having watched the last four years when we were, we were told that there was election fraud, the Russians stole it, that all huge amounts of Department of Justice resources were directed at getting to the bottom of this. What is it? 30, $40 million investigation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for a political, for a political effort. And now all of a sudden for a political effort, really stemming from the previous administration. And then now we're hearing about the peaceful transfer of power. And apparently a, there's a litmus, lit, litmus test that if you think there may have been voter fraud, you, you don't get bail if you are happen to be in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. It's just kind of it's ridiculous. So not only is Merrick Garland once again going to prioritize another Justice Department partisan political prosecution, as we saw repeatedly under Obama and then really under the Trump administration, he also is aligned with the open borders crowd. And here's what uh, Josh Hawley, Senator Hawley, pushed uh, Garland on, uh, on Monday. It, will you continue to prosecute on unlawful border crossings? Well, uh, this is, again, a, a question of allocation of resources. Um, um, we will uh, – uh, the department uh, will uh, uh, prevent unlawful um, uh, crossing. Um, I don't know – you know, I, I have to admit I just don't under, know exactly what the conditions are and how this is uh, uh, done. I think if um, – um, I don't know what the current program even is with respect uh, to this. Um, if there um, – so – uh, I, I assume that the answer would be yes, but I don't. I don't know what the uh, 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 issues around surrounding it are. Yeah, not his best day with that answer. Um, that did not sound good or confidence inspiring. And also, really, it does strain credulity that a man who wants to be Attorney General of the United States has not thought about what to do about laws being broken. Because that's what it is. I mean, the question was: Are you going to prosecute people who illegally? enter the border. Well, it, 
illegally being the key word there. Um, but I guess he hasn't thought about that. Maybe um, he didn't I wonder get his uh, talking points yet from Jen Psaki, how to answer oh, the question. He got the talking points and the talking points mm-hmm. were to scream squirrel and look away because they, they, I'm sure the real answer, they didn't want to go on the record. And by the way, that's what a lot of his answers sounded like. It wasn't just to that. He either is acting, is playing dumb which or ignorant, which he might be. Uh, but that was, that's what he said a lot. You heard a lot of, um, I don't know, I'm not aware of it, I'm not sure, I'll look into it. This is not a man ready to take the reins of the Justice Department because, of course, he won't, just like Joe Biden is not in charge of the White House. He's going to have his... Uh, you know, vicious federal prosecutors take over and he'll just be like a Robert Mueller is sort of taking a nap in the corner. Well, he was, you don't go into a Senate confirmation hearing and wing it. Okay. There's like a very brutal process getting people ready to go before the Senate. So the idea that nobody raised this issue to him before the hearing, knowing that illegal immigration is an, is an uh, important issue for a lot of the Republican senators who would be questioning him is absurd. The answer he gave was the answer he they decided to give. It wasn't the real answer. So I never thought about it. No one asked you about illegal immigration. That's like a huge issue here we, for both parties. So, right. you know, I mean, I don't I don't well, buy it. He also repeatedly pretended he had never heard John Durham's name. John Durham is a special counsel, allegedly, purportedly looking into the origins of Crossfire Hurricane and everything that happened there, said, claimed, oh, John Durham, who's that? I don't know. I'll find out. I'll talk to him. I I don't know. He wouldn't answer about that. Also claimed he'd never heard of the Steele dossier. You know, a lot of that Mueller vibe coming from him. So is this intentional? Like you said, you don't just throw somebody up there unless, of course, you know that half the Republicans are going to vote to confirm him anyway. So his answers don't matter. Well, it's, and there's no consequences, really. I mean, it, what, what's, what's going to happen that he didn't answer these questions or just sort of played dumb? Well, I've never thought about it. Um, what is the consequence for that? Nothing. You know, he's, he's going to get confirmed. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are. I imagine they, they, they generally have a sense of, of who's going to get through and who isn't, and they'll pull someone who isn't because the senators will say ahead of time, like, I'm not voting, like, they, like what's going on with Neera Tandem another controversial nominee. So they probably do. He just needs to, you know, get through it, right, and have some sound bites for CNN and MSNBC and Jimmy Kimmel and all the cool kids at night. Um, and, and he just needs to get through it. And I think he'll, he'll get confirmed. And we're getting a little insight into what the next four years are going to be like. Right. And here's the next four years. If you're a Trump supporter, hide, lawyer up, <laughs> get, get what, lawyer Bitcoin? <laughs> Make sure you have, you know, your basement bunker is fully stocked with wine and beef jerky. Beef jerky and boxed wine. (laughs) Bite your tongue, Liz. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) I know you don't drink. I do. So that's why. Liz Sheld, you are always fun to talk to. You know what's going on. And we always end on our happy note, which is go buy your beef jerky and boxed wine. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Liz. Exposing political.
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Do you remember the kids in cages controversy drama uh, 2018, 2019 with Donald Trump? where the president was accused of all kinds of crimes against humanity for allegedly putting children uh, separated from their families at the border, putting them in cages. And there were all kinds of photos about children, migrant children who would cross the border either from Central America or Mexico being held in cages, which weren't cages. They were, I mean, it's not anything you would want your own child in, but because Barack Obama and this is when it started in 2014. He is the original author of the Kids in Cages policy because there was such a huge flood thanks to his open borders comments. And what people do, what a lot of migrants try to do, is bring children who are not their own, claiming that they have some kind of asylum, taking their children who aren't theirs to crossing the border. Then these kids are identified as their They don't belong to this illegal immigrant. And so they needed to find housing, some kind of care facilities for um, these children who are brought in illegally, brought in illegally to the country. So the kids in cages, the photos that were shown attributed to Donald Trump were really from 2014 Barack Obama era. But this whole hysteria started again in 2018-19 when the Trump administration issued their zero-tolerance policy trying to shut down the border and stem these surges, caravans, whatever you want to call them, of immigrants coming in uh, on the southern border. So fast forward to now 2021, Joe Biden and his administration As we just heard, Merrick Garland can't give a straight answer on enforcing our border laws, our immigration laws, to no one's surprise. Joe Biden has really put out the welcome mat, as the Democrats want and expect him to do. So now we are again seeing a big surge of illegal immigrants trying to cross the southern border. But here's the funny part. Suddenly, they're not kids in cages anymore. I know this will shock you. After January 2021, our political vernacular changed dramatically. So all of a sudden now, they are called migrant facilities for children. This is how the Washington Post reported it on Monday. The emergency facility, a vestige of the Trump administration that was open only a month in the summer of 2019, of course, the Trump administration walked back a lot of these policies, is being reactivated to hold up to 700 children ages 13 to 17. Government officials say the camp is needed because facilities for migrant children have had to cut capacity by nearly half because of coronavirus. Fine. At the same time, the number of unaccompanied children crossing the border has been inching up. That's a nice way to put it. With January reporting the highest total, more than 5,700 apprehensions. For that month in recent years, hmm, what happened? What happened in January of 2021? Please help me, Brain. I, I can't think of what it is. The Washington Post continues, but immigration lawyers and advocates question why the Biden administration would choose to reopen a Trump-era facility that was the source of protests and controversy. 
During the campaign, Biden pledged to undo former President Donald Trump's hardline immigration in his first several months of uh, first month in office. Biden signed several executive orders reversing many of those policies. Of course he did. His executive orders were the welcome mat. So now we have a new flood of children, big flood of children, that is only going to continue and just wait till the weather warms up. I mean, this was the same thing that happened with the surge back in 2018 when Donald Trump tried to pass his emergency uh, order, or use the National Emergencies Act to declare a crisis at the border. Of course, he was stopped by many Republicans in the Senate who overturned that. But by April, even Senator Mitt Romney, who had opposed Trump's using his National Emergency Act authority, which he did have, all of a sudden by April, border crossings were over 100,000 in one month alone. So what we're seeing now is nothing compared to what we're going to see when the uh, weather wakes up, uh, weather warms up, excuse me. So now groups of beige trailers encircle, uh, this is the Washington Post, white dining tent, a soccer field, and basketball court. There's a bright blue hospital tent. Legal services trailer has the Spanish words, bienvenidos, or welcome on it, the banner, uh, on, uh, banner on its roof. Uh, they have flowers and butterflies, homemade posters, and 13,200 beds for children. So that's how the Washington Post is trying to decorate the Biden immigration crisis that will only exacerbate. But at least for the time being, there's no kids in cages. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. President Biden, to the extent that he's in charge of anything right now, is rolling back Donald Trump's America First policies, not just at home, but abroad as well. And he's wasting no time, or the people behind him are wasting no time doing this. And it's really frightening and harkens back to, of course, what Barack Obama did, putting America, I wouldn't really say last, but definitely not first, so he could appease all of his friends uh, overseas. uh, Today with me tonight is Mike Duran, who is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and also was had um, worked with was a White House advisor. I shouldn't say worked with White House advisor for George W. Bush in charge of the Middle East at the National Security Council. He's going to talk to us a little bit about Joe Biden's uh, foreign policy plans, why she why we should be alarmed. So, Mike, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, what a pleasure. You had an a, an op ed in the Wall Street Journal earlier this month. Um, entitled, In the Mideast, Biden Returns to Abnormal. He revives the Obama policy of strengthening America's enemies and harming its friends. Why? Why is he doing this? Oh, yeah, great question. Um, I'll give you, let me just quickly just describe what he's doing, and then I'll, I'll give you my theoretical explanation as to why he's doing it. Um, when, when Obama went for the Iran nuclear deal, he wasn't just making a an arms control agreement, like he said. 
he was actually repositioning the United States and the whole region and put, take, put, pulling it away from its traditional allies, three of which are the most important, and that's Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. And he put the United States so that it was balancing those three with Iran and, and Russia, kind of saw the United States as having a being a, a, the, 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 the chairman of a committee that was a round table, and on that, around that table you had the Turks, the Israelis, and the, the Saudis, but also the Russians and the Iranians, and the, and, and the United States was kind of in between them. Obama even spoke this way. He, 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 said, that, uh, he, he said that we have to, uh, um, he told the Saudis that they have to learn to share the region with the Iranians, as if it's the Saudis, not the Iranians, that are the aggressive ones, hmm. and so on. And he, of course, we know he was famously hostile to, the, to Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Biden is shifting back to that perspective, and you can see it in a lot of ways. They've immediately gone after Saudi Arabia, lifted the designation on the Houthis. The Houthis are an Iranian proxy in, in Yemen um, and, and so on. Why are they doing this? Well, my, what, I, what I think is really they want to roll back the successes of Donald Trump. He had, the, the, the Middle East is one of those areas where he had, I would say, tremendous success and success that people who were not necessarily diehard Trump supporters could see clearly. Um, so they want to roll those back. But I think we're in an era now where there really isn't a very clear distinction between domestic and foreign policy. Let me, I, have, I pulled up a quote here for you uh, from Jake Sullivan, who's now the national security advisor to Biden. And this is just, he was already the de national security advisor designate before he took office. And he said, we've reached a point where foreign policy is domestic policy and domestic policy is foreign policy. I think the purpose in the Middle East of Biden's foreign policy is to break the organic tie between Israel and the American and the populist right in America. I mean, Donald Trump instinctively understood this. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. He recognized the Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. He, pr he presented a, a, uh, a peace plan between the Israelis and the Palestinians that, that was based on totally different principles than, than are traditionally put forward by, forward by our national security elite. All of that was not just good foreign policy. It played, it played at home extremely well. And that's why they want to kill this. They, they want to kill it because it's, a, it's domestic politics and foreign policy together. And I think you can go around the globe. I think you can talk about Europe and China, and you can see that actually all of Biden's foreign policies are really domestic policies designed to destroy the populist right. That is uh, really a, sort of a terrifying view of what's happening, because here in America, as you know, they're criminalizing Trump supporters, trying to throw them in jail and make villains and, and terrorists. I mean, that's the word, right? Terrorists out of Americans. But yet you have countries who we know support terrorism overseas, threaten our troops, threaten our national security. That doesn't seem to be a concern. Well, you know, Julie, I look at the things like the COVID relief uh, uh, bill that they're putting together, and it's it it's got very little to do with COVID. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're using the pandemic in order to pad the wallets of uh, uh, of the traditional Democratic uh, constituencies, whether it's the teachers' unions or any of the public sector unions, um, and I think. Also, on China policy, you know, uh, the day after 
the day after President Biden spoke with Xi Jinping, he, he goes and turns around and says, well, we're competing with the Chinese. And that, that's, a, that's a rhetoric that's similar to the Trump rhetoric. Well, how, how, how are we competing with the Chinese? We're going to, uh, we're going to uh, build up our domestic infrastructure with regard to transportation. So, uh, you know, it's it's all about <laughs> infrastructure week. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, here. it's all of, it's all about building up a statist power, a statist power, centralized economic power um, in, in order, I, again, to crush the populist right. I, I will to, to crush the right, I think, is the goal. And it's interesting. Can you stay with us for a couple of minutes, uh, more minutes after we mm-hmm. have a break in a second? Sure. Um, it's interesting that one of the last leaders that Joe Biden has called was Netanyahu. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the excuse that they gave for that was that the Middle East isn't the top priority and he hasn't called any Middle Eastern leader and so on. But hmm. this was nonsense. It, it, it was, it was um, transparent nonsense because the first decisions that they made were all about the Middle East, about uh, about denying arms to Saudi Arabia because of the war in Yemen and lifting the designation on the Houthis, uh, as I mentioned. So apparently, you know, the outreach to Iran, uh, also they announced immediately that they want to get back to the Iran deal, um, and they've been working in that, in, in that direction. So the Middle East was important enough to make these early decisions, but not important enough to call our, our number one ally. Hmm. Interesting. On the other side uh, here, we'll talk about how Biden undermining our energy independence emboldens our foes. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Mike Duran, senior fellow with the Hudson Institute and an expert on foreign affairs, especially the Middle East. Joe Biden is quickly undermining one of Trump's greatest achievements, which was energy independence. How does that embolden our foreign adversaries when we are we're cutting off, you know, our own trying to cut off our own supply of energy? when obviously it benefits people that we shouldn't be helping. No, I mean, absolutely. This is a great example. I mean, you're referring to the XL pipeline. And I thought that was amazing because Mm -hmm. under the, under the rubric of, uh, of return to normal, that's what Biden was saying. So now we're going to, we're going to, we're going to rebuild our alliances. The first thing they did was they slapped, uh, Trudeau in Canada, who's a, who's a liberal, who's not an ally of Donald Trump, but the, but he was in favor of the XL pipeline. And similarly in Europe, uh, uh, one of the greatest things Trump did was to uh, uh, was to sanction the um, Nord Stream two. This is the this is the pipeline that takes Russian gas to Europe um, to Germany. And and there's a bipartisan consensus in in the United States that that Europe should not be dependent on Russia for its energy. And Nord Stream 2 was giving Russia too much leverage. So Trump took that position. I thought Biden was going to have to 
um, was going to have to listen to the Democrats in Congress who don't like Nord Stream 2, but apparently he's not. All the signals are that they're they're not going to uh, they're they're going to lift all of the restrictions on 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 Nord Stream 2. That's going to go forward, and now we're going to have a Green New Deal with Europe. So it's another way of building up these kind of state-run industries in the United States that. Uh, that undermine uh, industries that support right-wing causes um, and, or in- industries that are associated with right-wing causes and with the effect that we're going to give Russia more leverage over Europe. It doesn't make any sense from a national security point of view. Yeah, this none of this makes any sense, except to your point that what Jake Sullivan said, that foreign policy now is domestic policy and vice versa, which is part of what you just brought up, re-enter the Green New Deal, re-entering the Paris climate, in our last minute here, who benefits from, we know, but explain a little bit, who benefits from re-entering the Paris Climate uh, Pact? Oh, well, uh, China benefits from that the most. And, of course, at home, the Democratic Party and all of its favorite industries that are going to have their hand out for government subsidies. Let's just end with a quote. And I got another quote here for you from Jake Sullivan. We don't, oh, good. This is, I, don't have to, I don't have to analyze this because <laughs> I can put it in their words. He says, you, he's speaking to, to President-elect Biden, and he says, you have, you have tasked us, that's your national security uh, advisors, with reimagining our national security for the unprecedented combination of crises we face at home and abroad. The pandemic, the economic crisis, the climate crisis, technological disruption, threats to democracy, racial injustice, and inequality in all forms. So how do you solve inequality in all forms? You build up state industries which the Democrats control the levers to. That's how you do it. Well, they know what they're doing, I'll tell you. Mike Duran, the Hudson Institute, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. In 2016, a very controversial but highly prescient essay was written and published called The Flight 93 Election. And it really laid out in very stark terms that offended many people on the right, the conservative establishment legacy people. But it laid out in very stark terms the choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and what was at stake. Um, And actually now looking back, it seems a little bit optimistic. Um, But the author of that essay not only was spot on, he continues to speak out about the, the condition of the country. He has written another book called The Stakes, which is a follow-up really to the Flight 93 uh, election essay. And he's just one of the greatest thinkers on the right right now, which of course we need because there's a dearth of them. <laughs> so with me now is Michael Anton. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So, Michael, I want to talk to you before we get into your latest essay called The Continuing Crisis, which can be found on the Claremont uh, Review Books uh, uh, website and also the hard copy. This week, we are have nothing going on in Capitol Hill except January 6th, January 6th, the armed insurrection, etc. So your essay really taught your your piece here really talks about the election and its aftermath. 
what are we seeing now? What are, what do you make of this hysteria? And how do we get out of this? I mean, I'm a bit of a – I had to go back and forth with my editors at the CRB – uh, some of the difference of opinion. I mean, it's a friendly difference of opinion. I think they took January 6th much more seriously than I did, which is to say I don't discount it. Five people did die. Uh, as I understand it, a, a Capitol, we know a Capitol Hill police officer died. The, the regime, as I have now taken to calling it, um, initially tried to imply or even say that he was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher by one of the rioter protesters. That has been walked back. Now they simply won't say how he died at all. And his family has said, drop the subject. We don't want this man's death to be politicized. We know that the officer was a Trump supporter, not to say that if he had been attacked, anyone who was attacking him would have known that. Um, but it seems to me that the, you know, what they were looking for was some kind of martyr that they could say Trump supporters are violent. This guy was killed defending the Capitol by violent people. Uh, I, I, I'm assuming that what happened is, is that they look into it. He had a pre-existing medical condition. They don't really have any evidence that he was killed by a Trump supporter or even by violence at all. And they, which means they can't keep pushing the old false narrative. But here's the one thing they never do. When they push out something that's a lie at the beginning, they never come out and walk it back. So, for instance, in the Covington fiasco, great example, um, you know, racist kids picking on Native American protester activist all turns out to be a complete lie. And the only reason we know it is because of lots of people taking video at the time and subsequent libel suits. But, you know, none of the media that reported the falsehood in the first place ever comes out and goes, gosh, we really got that wrong. We're sorry. You know, they just try to make the story go away. And this, part of the sinister aspect of that is they leave that initial impression in place, right? So if the only thing you saw as a reader of the New York Times or the Washington Post was the initial reporting that, oh, this man, this police officer was beaten to death by protesters, and you're not reading the papers carefully every day, you won't know that that has been walked back. Uh, That's that's almost certainly not true. You'll just remember that initial impression, and and that's what the regime wants for, for you. They want you to remember only that initial impression. And then they console themselves by saying, well, we're not lying. We, we reported what uh, the best information we had at the time. And just because we declined to clarify later doesn't mean that we're lying, right? It's all a pretty clever game. Um, so five people died. One, one person was shot by a Capitol Hill police officer. Um, I have seen reports. They're all leaked reports. I don't know how credible it is that, you know, they've already concluded the shooting was fine. We're not going to release the name of the officer who did it. We're not going to do any further investigation. So that, even if that isn't the formal conclusion now, I say 99%, you and I both know that's what's going to happen. (laughs) That's just going to be, well, you know, this was, this was justified. We, you know, it's already buried. It's already buried. There's, there's no coverage of it. There's no interest. You know, this Michael, when, when a police officer shoots somebody, we know right away who the officer's name, we know his family members, he gets doxxed. It it depends on who they shoot. (laughs) You know, it depends on the political. I mean, if, if 2020 made every one thing plain or should have made plain to everybody is that equal justice in the United States is now a complete and total farce that does not exist on any plane. And I don't just mean in the criminal justice system or with police shootings, but in white collar crime, uh, political type stuff, you know, giving the wrong amount of money or too much money to the, a certain candidate can land you in jail if you're on one side, or it can not, you know, not even be, uh, have charges brought against you if you're on the other side. The country is uh, a complete hoo-hoom at this point. If you're on the right side, you get, you get lenient treatment or no treatment. And if you're on the wrong side, you get the book thrown at you for jaywalking. 
It's true. And, you know, watching the Merrick Garland hearings this week gives no assurances. Well, first of all, I don't, I don't know if you're watching any of it, but no, he, oh, I figured you weren't. But he's, he's not at all prepared to be attorney general. He will be he's kind of the Robert Mueller. He's going to be the front man and then have the Andrew Weissman's of the world uh, really take the reins. Of well, the what I've department. seen from the reporting is what they're going to do, which is which was obvious from the moment January 6th happened, is this turned out to be a supremely convenient excuse for them to do all kinds of things that they've been wanting to do for a while that I think, I think they would have done anyway, but now that they can do on a vastly accelerated time frame. So, I mean, to, 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 to read the reporting from Merrick Garland's hearings, which I admit I haven't watched, if the reporting is accurate, what he has said is, is that America is essentially, it's, it's, you know, it's 19, late 1932 in America. And it is on the eve of a takeover by vicious Nazis, and we have to use all the apparatus of the security state to suppress these racist Nazis from taking over the country. And that's going to justify all kinds of surveillance, massive law enforcement operations against any dissent against the left-wing agenda. Now, I think that is entirely preposterous. I I go back and forth on whether the people who push this narrative actually believe it. I think some do. They're that deluded. I think some know it's a lie, but it's a useful lie because it allows them to enact the agenda they want. But what we are obviously going to get from the Department of Justice in the next four to eight to 16 whatever years is um, criminalization of dissent, um, ignoring what used to be considered the types of crimes that the Department of Justice actually did investigate, right? And a complete politicization of the department. That is to say the completion of the politicization of the department, which, is, which has been underway for years. Right. They are basically the law enforcement arm of the Democratic Party. They do nothing to represent 330 million Americans, regardless of political affiliation. You talk about in your piece, um, but really what this is covering up, as you detail in your in your article here, is the legitimate election fraud that took place last year. This is they they want this buried. They want this criminalized. Go through what you talk about in your piece here that we already know and a lot of Americans know. What happened? Well, I will have a new piece up, I think, tomorrow on American greatness, going into more detail. Oh, which just uh, look, I don't actually know what happened. I'm not a firm believer in anything about the 2020 election. So I have friends who who will talk to, who will talk to me about it and say, I know this was stolen, and they'll go through the list to which I listen to sympathetically. But I say to them, look, you haven't proved your case to me right. to my satisfaction, and I'm sympathetic. Therefore, you can't expect the arguments you just made to me to to be convincing to people who are less sympathetic, right? But I I do say that at least the people who are trying to allege fraud, they're trying to make arguments. The people who are denying all fraud, they're not making arguments. They're just saying, shut up, shut up. Do not talk about this. We will punish you if you talk about it. It is a conspiracy theory. I've seen some reports that the DOJ is considering going after people, uh, finding some novel way to prosecute people for doubting or for spreading, you know, false information about the election. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I'd like to say that's ridiculous. It's going to happen. So in that sense, it's not ridiculous. It shows you though, that there there's no First Amendment protection left in the United States for people on the wrong side of the regime. As for my own stance, I don't know what happened in 2020. I saw a lot of things that looked fishy. I personally have not been satisfied by the explanation. I long ago came to the conclusion that I personally will never be able on my own to figure out what happened. To figure out what really happened would require um, cooperation of investigating authorities at the state, federal, and local levels, most of, of which authorities have an interest in having the election come out the way it did and have an interest in not exposing fraud because fraud is a tool that they use to get what they want when they want it. 
There, I therefore conclude that there will be no investigation, and we'll never know. Uh, people who like the outcome will, will simply insist that it was all above board. Actually, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the new piece is because I'm constantly, not constantly, but at least a little bit lately, I'm getting ankle-bitten by supposed conservatives saying, oh, there goes Anton again, you know, peddling base, baseless conspiracy theories that have been quote-unquote debunked. To which I only say, well, okay, maybe to you, you know, Ramesh Panuru, Rich Lowry, National Review, they've been, quote unquote, debunked. They haven't been debunked for my satisfaction. On the other, after this quick break, I want to talk about a little bit about your original essay, Flight 93, and those people you just mentioned and how they targeted you then and they just will, they, they can't quit you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Michael, you brought up the National Review crowd, Ramesh Panururu, however you say his name, Rich Lowry and Jonah Goldberg, who now are, he's now at the Dispatch. They were, of course, Bill Crystal, who outed you as the anonymous author of the Flight 93 election. These people are, are on your tail constantly. And so talk, uh, what happened after you, pu- after you published that? Why do you think that they are still after you, aside from the fact that you've been right and they've been wrong, what are they I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the, the, the charitable explanation would be, well, they, you know, they simply disagree and it's an honest disagreement. And, you know, debate is all about disagreement. Uh, I get the sense that that's not really it, though, <laughs> no. especially since I really don't ever I don't write about them or talk about them. Um, I don't honestly, why. to be to be to be perfectly honest, I, I long ago, long before I even wrote the Flight 93 election, I had stopped reading National Review. I had stopped reading NRO. I had stopped caring what they think. I had found it not only entirely uninteresting, but I had found it to be basically controlled opposition. You know, just the, just cover for the right flank of the Democratic Party and the blue the blue leftist oligarchy. And I found you know I I already know I know all these arguments. And everything is, in any case, offered in bad faith. I just don't care about this anymore. Jonah Goldberg really has it out for you, I think, because for the reasons that you just said, and not that anyone cares, Jonah Goldberg is washed up. He's just a bitter old man. But, again, you could judge someone by their enemies. And I think the fact that this crowd that's always been wrong, that you said controlled opposition, they're all in on January 6th, too. You know, they're... You even have somebody like Andy McCarthy, a former prosecutor, who said Brian Sicknick was murdered, and he had to walk that back, too. They're always on that side. They're always shooting to the right. You're- yeah, uh, my friend and, and, and sort of boss, in the sense that I have two affiliations, one is with the Claremont Institute, the president of the Claremont Institute, Ryan Williams, had a had a, an amusing tweet the other night. Um, I just want to clarify: I'm not on Twitter. I don't look at Twitter, but people send me links, and sometimes when friends send me links, I will look at it. All right, there's my defense myself. Believe it if that's like somebody in the '70s saying I only read Playboy for the articles, but whatever. <laughs> Ryan said, you know, here, here's a new definition of David Frenchism, a term coined by uh, Sorab Amari of the New York Post. Um, you know, always punch right. That's the only thing that you do. They exist only to punch right, right? These guys are supposedly the avatars of conservatism. I never see them take on the left anymore, nope. ever, on, on anything. 
I, I mean, it's just to them, their sole role, the only thing that gives their soul, the soul, S-O-L-E, now S-O-U-L, the only thing that gives their soul pleasure or meaning is to police their ostensible side and to show, you know, to virtue signal, maybe an overused term, but I think it works here in this sense, to virtue signal to their, 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 their real masters of the left. What they really want is a secure place in the leftist regime as the good conservatives, the, you know, the people who represent uh, honest, reasonable conservatism and so can go on the TV shows and be quoted in the mainstream media mm-hmm. and so on. That's what they really want. And that's basically what they have. And that is the, I think, their position in society that their every utterance and every writing serves to protect. Your book, The Stakes, is sort of a follow-up to your original essay. And it really talks about, I mean, you, you detail the situation in California, which is dismal, and other, <laughs> I guess, pretty depressing aspects of the condition of our country right now. I really urge people to pick it up because you're always you understand what's at stake and you also can explain it. If I may say, I mean, it's meant to be it's not meant to be the follow up to the flight 93 election. It's meant to be something bigger than that. Just that. I mean, I'm sensitive on this point. (laughs) So so hear me out. Hear me out. Right. It's supposed to be a real I, I mean, I was trained as a political scientist and now I actually practice political science as a as a as a college teacher. Okay, and it's meant to be regime analysis, which is a classic genre of political sciences, which is to look at a government, a regime, a form of government, and say, how does it actually operate, right? In the ancient world, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Xenophon wrote these descriptions of constitutions of the Athenians, the constitution of the Spartans. It's meant to be something like that for the United States, except rather than just what the, what the, what the out-of-touch uh, conservatives uh, do is they look at the parchment of 1787, 1791, and they and which is fine. I did this too in grad school, and it's it's wonderfully and uh, ennobling and enlightening. One should do this. One should look at the parchment, read the actual documents, read the arguments made in their favor. But official conservatism looks at that and says, well, if we know what James Madison thought, then we know everything. Well, what if what James Madison thought and what the parchment says is not actually honored in the operation of the United States government in 2020? 2021. I wrote the book mostly in 2020, and it was published in 2020, right? And that's where they they refuse to admit that anything has changed. To them, you know, once you once you know, you know, you have your little pocket, you know, Cato Institute Declaration Constitution. That's all you need to know. That's it. You're done. You know what America is. Well, America 2021. The regime does not operate the way the parchment says. And I try to explain how it actually does operate. And I think. If I may be immodest, I have a better understanding of the parchment than any of those clowns do, and I certainly have a better grasp of the ways in which the parchment is not honored, is not operational. So it offers a regime analysis, both of what the regime was supposed to be, what it actually is, and how it operates, and where I think it, it is going if it remains on its current trajectory. And where is it going? Well, that's the, I, I lay this out in Chapter 7. I don't know, so I give possibilities, right? I, I'm not, I have no crystal ball, but I do think that a few possibilities are likely. I think that um, you know, it's, uh, the regime could crack up. It could fail, uh, or, or, or it could succeed. That is to say, what we have now could keep going, and I speculate as to how long it could be, keep going. Right? Um, I do think that the present ruling arrangements in the United States are too inherently self-contradictory, too anti-nature, too just stupid, but also too wrought by inherent stress points within the coalition that the left has built, that it's hard to imagine this going on 
for a long time. You know, people will, will throw a depressive thought in my face and they say, well, you know, the Soviet Union lasted 70 years. And I go, yeah, that's bad. Uh, I'd hate for this to last 70 years. <laughs> then again, you know, it's not clear if you start the clock on the woke regime we have in 2020 or does it go back a number of decades? The roots of it certainly go back a number of decades. But also, you know, to try to be a little bit more optimistic, I don't yet see um, the kind of ruthless competence of uh, and, and, and just pure malevolent focused evil of a Lenin in anybody in this regime today, right? I mean, whatever you may think of Joe Biden, I mean, come on, he's not that. Um, I think much less of Kamala Harris than of Joe Biden, and I actually do think she has some serious malevolence in her heart. I've seen it as a native of California, but thank God I think she also is just not as smart or driven as some of the people who made the Soviet Union last 70 years, which gives me hope that this thing may not have a very, very super long shelf life. I think that's a really solid point. And watching Merrick Garland, and I was thinking, God, don't don't put this guy as attorney general. Then part of me says, go ahead, because he can't even finish a sentence. He doesn't. He has no grasp of anything that's going on. So to your point, there are a lot of people who are in these positions of power, and we saw this even with Jim Comey, et cetera. Yeah, they damaged some people, but their end goal, they never finished up because they're – well, I, I don't know. I'm, now I'm going to be I'm the more pessimistic. Um, I think they've done a lot of damage, and I think their their power is more consolidated now. The the energy on the left, blue left coalition, is give me everything immediately, and if you don't, you're Hitler. Michael Anton, thank you so much for your time today. You, Michael is one of the great not just thinkers but writers and talkers. If you haven't read any of his work, check it out, please. Michael, thanks so much. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Last spring, March, April, there were literally, I can count them on both hands, maybe that's being generous, the number of journalists, pundits, observers, whatever you want to call them, who are highly skeptical about what we were hearing about the novel coronavirus uh, and pandemic and the lockdowns. One of those people is Steve Dace. He is with the blaze, but also a great communicator from the beginning, skeptic, <laughs> skeptic, so to speak, from the beginning. We were in the trenches. We are being proven right. I say that humbly because there's been so much damage, catastrophic damage done in the interim. But Steve is joining us today. We're going to talk about a lot of things happening with COVID. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. You bet, Julie. Appreciate your work as well. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with the vaccines. We're seeing sort of the Biden administration backtracking a little bit, I think, on their goals. They're claiming they Mm -hmm. didn't have enough supply. They don't have enough vaccinators. Um, But maybe people are starting to wake up to the fact that they don't really need or want a vaccine. What's the latest? So we're we're seeing this term that was bastardized last year because we basically did this with any science. Any established precedent of virology, immunology, biology was trashed in exchange for whatever political narrative surrounding COVID-19 benefited the panic porn. And I won't say this out loud altered the outcome of the election. Okay, I just said it out loud. Mm -hmm. So 
True. So now we're kind of getting back to science again, and we're hearing this term herd immunity. See, herd immunity, that's the point of a vaccination program. The point of a vaccination program is to get a community to herd immunity uh, before the, a natural immunity would occur because that comes with a toll. In order to reach natural immunity, enough people have to be infected, and that can include sickness, lethality, in other words, death. And so you vaccinate in order to artificially get there before a contagion completely wreaks havoc during an outbreak. That's the goal, is to get us to herd immunity. We're hearing this, this term again now. Well, what's happening around the country since January the 8th, Julie, daily new cases everywhere in America have collapsed 71%. Wow. 71%. We have, I don't even think 11% of the population is vaccinated yet. So this is not, and that's if you even assume the efficacy of the vaccines and their claims, which we haven't seen play out yet in real time, and we hope that those are true. But that's not enough to hit any kind of herd immunity threshold in a country this vast and diverse. See, what I believe has happened, and I said this privately to my own staff on my show, but I didn't want to get out in front of this yet because I wasn't sure. And then one of the experts at Johns Hopkins, which has been one of the chief purveyor of panic warrants for the last year, he actually wrote this in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, that, that if you look at the data trends, we appear to have hit a herd immunity threshold, meaning the point in an outbreak where there's enough natural immunity that you begin to see pushback and slow up the growth against, against the virus. And, and I think that explains the collapse we have seen in cases. One of the explanations, I think you've also seen the World Health Organization an hour after Joe Biden was inaugurated, urge countries to now have a more uh, realistic uh, cycle threshold testing score in their PCR testing. So you put and that means the number together. of times that the, that yes. the sample is, is really basically rotated and they're trying to pick up pieces of the virus. Yes. And this cycle threshold, for, pe- for people who don't know, a lot of them were 35, 40, which is super mm-hmm. high. And they, this is what led to so many false positives. Or asymptomatic cases like college students who did, who I, I think Andrew Boston at Brown University surveyed 100,000 college uh, cases of positive tests, and one of them led to a hospitalization because you're picking up so many un- people that are not really contagious, infectious, or viral artifacts with such sensitivity. So you throw, you, you have a more realistic testing process, then you throw in the natural immunity. I mean, the LA Times ran a story about Los Angeles County, one of the largest counties in the country marveling how they just out of nowhere hit, they think, a herd immunity threshold and cases are finally collapsing there. But Julie, if you go back to April 20th of last year, the University of Southern California did an antibody survey of Los Angeles County. And what it found was 4% of the residents of that county already had infections, Mm -hmm. that there were anywhere from 28 to 55 times more COVID infections than the, than the L.A. County Health Department was, was, was listing at the time. And, and back on April 20th, we had not even reached 50,000 deaths with COVID in America yet. And already there was 4% penetration of that county. And so play that math out over the course of that was last April. This is now late February. Play that math out over the course of what's that, nine months? Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't be shocked at that rate of infection that you've hit a herd immunity threshold. It's just you'd be shocked if you if if you're if the premise of all of your data was bad and i think that's been the big unsolved mystery of all of this beyond political motivations and everything else it's just bad data the baseline that all this data began from it's a little bit like claiming gravity started when the apple fell on newton's head <laughs> no it didn't it was just observed for the first time then but the gravity was here for thousands of years before that after this let's talk about how wrong th- that has been since the beginning and the trajectory of this and how we how i think people are starting to pull themselves out of it
It's a mistake. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. That is the best analogy, Steve, that I've heard about gravity. And some of us brought this up early on. This flattening the curve, well, they all, they started the curve on March 16th. And here's our little chart, and it shows how things mm-hmm. are going up. Well, to your point, and now we know from other studies that this virus, and it just makes common sense too, was here in late 2019, at the very earliest, it could have been months before that. So the idea that all of a sudden, as soon as Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci started making charts, that's when this curve started. But it's not. And so we're way further ahead than what the data, so quote unquote, data shows. Well, you look at Italy, uh, the country that was probably torn apart more by coronavirus than any nation on Earth. The things began to simmer down and they went back and and did, uh, you know, a forensic pathology analysis of the virus to try to trace its origins. Um, They were able to find evidence of it in their their septic system going back to last September. Hmm. We actually record our first death of of COVID, uh, a 57-year-old Silicon Valley uh, worker back in on February the 6th, which means if you know anything about the incubation period of this virus, she got infected at some time in January at the absolute latest. Uh, Ohio did a study uh, last year trying to also trace origins of the virus and, and were able to trace it back to December. Julie, we take in 370,000 Chinese college students a year. Right. And that's not counting all of the other China travel back and forth between the world's two great economic superpowers. And let's face it, the Chinese government's lying to their citizens like the rest of the world, too. How many of those kids went home for Thanksgiving or Christmas break? And had no idea and then came back here and brought it back here with them. The idea that this thing just began percolating and circulating, go look at the flu cycle uh, data from, uh, from the CDC. Uh, the two weeks prior to the shutdowns, when everything became about COVID, we were just below the epidemic threshold, according to CDC, for flu and pneumonia in America, like two-tenths of a decimal point below it. So, I mean, mathematically, essentially there. Is it possible that because we're, we're still at hospitals coding all of this as COVID-like symptoms now, we didn't have a coding for this new respiratory virus, so we were coding these things as flu and pneumonia. The symptoms are often similar, and, and, and that is what led to an explosion of those cases across the country in the weeks leading up to the, to the shutdown. Our data is bad because the baseline for it has been wrong from the very beginning. It's funny you say that, Steve. My daughter attends in a private college in upstate New York, and she said they all went back after Christmas break. Of course, there's a lot of Chinese students there. And she said, we knew something was up because all the Chinese kids came back wearing masks, which they hadn't had on before. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she said, and, you know, the only time they would take their mask off they were smoking because they all smoke, which is fine. <laughs> um, but it's funny that you mentioned that because I think that that did help the spread of it. We and I mean, they, the students obviously were not subjected to the China travel ban. But yes, the baseline, the data is wrong. But Steve, you have been doing, I mean, you know this data like the back of your hand. Suddenly the flu has disappeared. No one has a mm-hmm. flu. No one's testing. You know, the CDC keeps saying we're finding remarkably low uh, presence of, of the flu virus this year. What's up with that? Well, I mean, they, they try to say, well, it's because of the masks. If that's the case, how come all of their studies prior to 
basically June of last year showed when they tried to look at masking from a flu perspective that masks don't work. So the masks made the flu go away, but they didn't make the COVID go away. That doesn't make any sense. There, there's a couple of answers, potential answers to this. Um, and, and, and the problem for the panic porn purveyors is that it, they, they, both would, um, uh, they both would disturb their premise. One option is that everything's just being coded as COVID at this point. Uh, the symptoms are the same, uh, just like, you know, deaths from COVID, deaths with COVID, uh, that we're doing the same thing from a diagnosis standpoint. I mean, I've, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten in my audience from people who have told me, you know, I went there, I tested negative for, the, for COVID. They wouldn't even give me a flu test. Mm -hmm. uh, we know about the upcoding incentivization for COVID diagnoses compared to other ailments. So, I mean, the bureaucracy of healthcare is, is one possibility. You know, there's a sinister possibility that uh, this was just all done politically in order to uh, scare the hell literally out of the country. Mm -hmm. But then there's a scientific explanation for this as well. And that is that we're dealing in COVID, you're dealing, and this is where you get into the notions of things called uh, new or fresh timber when you're talking about contagions and outbreaks and community spread. But the scientific explanation to make a very rudimentary um, analysis of it is that essentially the new superior outbreak, like a form of, I guess you'd call it natural selection, has replaced the weaker one um, and making its way uh, through, through the community. Well, the problem with that explanation, if that is the case, then that shows that when we use the term novel coronavirus, it means it's a new strain of a coronavirus we haven't seen, but it's not a novel virus, meaning the, the natural laws of immunology, virology, and biology, the things we knew, we knew prior to this thing being politicized, as Scott Atlas has pointed out in so many different formats, those precedents and laws still remain, which also means, therefore, this idea of locking down all of these healthy people so that they wouldn't go home with asymptomatic, uh, as asymptomatic carriers and zombify or kill their grandparents by the CDC's own analysis, only about 15% of cases in America have been asymptomatic. So this idea, and this has been studied all over the world, the highest threshold I've seen is 8% of spread could be traced back to asymptomatic. Fauci said last January 28th, there's never, ever been an outbreak of a respiratory virus that's been generated and driven by asymptomatic spread, and there won't be here either. He knew this, he knew this science beforehand. And so we get to questions of why did he... Uh, and his ilk, abandon all these precedents of science um, at this point in time. And all of the answers potentially to that question are bad. Well, you don't get on the cover of InStyle magazine, you know, if you're being frank with the American people about a virus. You, you know, you have to gin this up and then look like you're the big savior. That's one motivation for sure. I will say this. And, uh, and I'm actually a personal self shameless plug. We're about to announce my next book is a takedown uh, and, and of pages and pages of footnotes of Anthony Fauci Good. and the scam that has been for the, uh, the last year and a half. I've never in my, in my career in politics, and I've worked in media, I've worked for candidacies from uh, school board to president of the United States. I, and so I've seen a lot of liars. I've seen a lot of frauds. I've been lied to by some of the best of them. Mm -hmm. I've never seen a bigger scam or public policy fraud in my career. And I don't know of one in American history than Anthony Fauci. I think that uh, that's uh, an understatement. <laughs> Steve, you've done exceptional, outstanding work on this. You've been such an important and influential and needed voice for sanity on this. Thanks so much. Uh, likewise, Julie.
guest of the show at danproftshow.com. The messaging out of the Biden administration on COVID is really a slow-moving disaster. Remember, we were told, we were promised Joe Biden and his team were going to have day one plan to stop this virus, to open up the schools, to open up the economy. We weren't going to shut down the economy. We were going to shut down the virus. That's what Joe Biden told us repeatedly over and over on the campaign trail. Well, guess what? It turns out they don't have a plan. The plans that they announced they're not going to be able to fulfill, which sadly includes the continued shutdown of schools across the country, uh, putting behind our most vulnerable children um, until Biden can pass his $1.9 trillion so-called bailout that's really just massive kickbacks to his constituencies, including the teachers' unions. It also looks like they may not reach their vaccine goal of 100 million Americans in the first 100 days because, of course, that is science. Here is the latest from White House Press Secretary John Psaki. Well, I think we, uh, one, inherited um, a circumstance where there was not a, uh, there were not enough vaccines ordered. There were not enough vaccinators available to vaccinate Americans. And there were not enough places to, uh, for people to go uh, to get those vaccines um, shot into their arms. And, uh, you know, you can always look back and say, we wish we would have done this better. We wish the storm wouldn't have come. Uh, But our focus is on building out of the hole that we inherited and ensuring that we are taking every step necessary, every step possible. So Jamisaki can wish cast all she wants that she really, really hoped that the Biden administration would not have to confront this virus, except for the fact that this was the whole centerpiece of his campaign, that Donald Trump killed hundreds of thousands of people because of his incompetence and malfeasance in handling it, pretending that Donald Trump always said that this was a hoax, that he had no plan. That's what they kept saying. He had no plan how to tackle this virus. Forget the fact that Donald Trump took terrible advice and authorized two shutdowns last March to that put the brakes on one of the most vibrant American economies in our country's history, blamed him repeatedly for every failure from lack of ventilators to obviously people passing away to the school shutdowns, et cetera. They promised they were going to do better. They had a plan. They had all the geniuses in place who were going to produce the vaccines, who were going to get them into the arms of Americans, as Jen Psaki says about two dozen times every press briefing. But they don't. And so now they have to admit to the American public, this is a massive, not just public health it's not really public health crisis, more of a political crisis, um, economic crisis. But what she said there is not true. There were plenty of vaccines. They ordered the first 100 million doses over the summer, spent $2 billion on a contract with Pfizer. Governors, local officials have known for months that they needed to put in place the right way to get vaccines distributed to their residents. So for her now to sit there on behalf of Joe Biden and play dumb and we're just the victims here, don't buy it. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers. 
fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Joe Biden has basically announced that the America's First policy that Donald Trump worked so hard for four years fought off the bipartisan beltway crowd and the diplomatic corps and, of course, all of our foreign friends, so to speak, and enemies, is quickly being redone. Joe Biden is dispatching, getting rid of the America First foreign policy and opening up the doors again to foreign money and influence into America's institutions. I think one of the benefits of the Trump presidency, among others, was the unmasking, so to speak, of Chinese money, Chinese products, um, and other foreign countries who don't have our best interest in mind uh, and how they've infiltrated so many areas of our, our country and pouring in billions of dollars. One of those countries is Qatar. And my uh, our next, my guest here, Dave Raboy, also a friend, he's an expert on Middle Eastern policy. He's a Claremont Institute Lincoln Fellow and Senior Fellow at the Center for Security Policy. He has a new book out that explains in details this country, this extremely wealthy country, uh, influence, money peddling, buying off lobbying, so much of uh, parts of our country. So, Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Julie. So talk about your book. It just came out, I believe, this week or last week. What your book talks about and your your knowledge about this country and what it's doing, not just here, but around the world, who it's funding and why we should be alarmed. Sure. I think um, I think the, 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 the book mostly, I started out writing it about um, about the information and influence operations that are being run uh, by Qatar sort of in the service of their uh, Muslim Brotherhood Islamist um, uh, ideology, the ideology that they promote. Um, but as time went on, um, it, it ended up being a book about the New Middle East. And, and, uh, and it's inter- interesting how you kind of open the, the uh the, the discussion talking about uh, the, the Trump administration and uh, and the America First foreign policy, specifically about the Middle East, um, because that's the real story. The, the the real story is is about the new Middle East and um, and what uh, what Donald Trump has was able to encourage um, there, which was which was very good. I don't think I mean you know looking in in retrospect, um, I don't think we have had another president. Who has been um, who's been so good on this issue? I mean, the one the one thing that everybody knows is that he started no wars, not in the Middle East and elsewhere. But uh, but the other thing that we saw, especially towards the the kind of tail end of the administration, was the Abraham Accords and uh, more cooperation between um, between uh, states that are, have traditionally been our allies in the region. Don't you think, Dave, this is a big reason? This is why they wanted to get rid of Donald Trump, a big part of it, right? What you're talking about is no wars, no no footprint in the Middle East. This affects huge sectors of of our economy that relies on what's happening in the Middle East. What do you is that a big reason why so many people wanted to get rid of Donald Trump? Um, I, I think it is. I, I, th- 
I, I definitely think it is. Um, they they went as far as to not allow the um, you know not allow Trump to withdraw from Syria and from Afghanistan, and they they even um, kind of joked amongst themselves. Remember when when they said you know we, we basically didn't listen, or we told them that we withdrew but we didn't withdraw, and uh, and you know I mean these these guys would do absolutely everything to to keep some of these. Uh, uh, to keep some of our forces in theater when there's really, you know, very little justification. I think, you know, what when it ended up happening, I mean, in, in Afghanistan in particular, um, is is we're still hearing old, you know, old tired arguments that that uh, you know may have made sense 10, 15 years ago, but now, you know, 20 years later. Um, are are kind of uh, completely ridiculous, and and yes, that was a big part of um, of why um, of why a lot of folks inside the Beltway and sort of within the, the, the national security industry um, opposed him. Um, I mean, the other thing is, you know, so it's it's partly about money, of course, but it's also about ideology, and all these guys just think the same way, and and you know, we we have seen a. Um, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of people with, um, with just a, you know, everyone has a, um, everyone has kind of the same views on everything. And this is a very much, uh, inside the beltway thing. You know, when we talk about the swamp, it's, it's just a group of people who have the same interests and have, you know, and look at the world in exactly the same way. So, of course, they lined up against Trump. So your book, uh, Guitars, Shadow War, it's now available on your website and also on Amazon. I think that what we, this country in particular, its infiltration in universities, in think tanks, I know that uh, I've covered a little bit about that. So talk about this country in particular and what your book covers. Sure. Um, so yes, we mentioned the, the fact that I mean it's good that you mentioned universities because Qatar is the single largest foreign donor to uh, American universities, and and under the Trump administration, the Department of Education was tasked with sort of assessing um, assessing the damage of what that what that looks like. And anytime you've got um, massive foreign funding, I mean from any country of um, of universities in the U.S., that kind of necessarily torques the whole incentive structure um, of what is being studied and how, how it's being studied. And, you know, and, and with that kind of money, you're able to leverage, um, you know, you're able to influence what the professor says and what are the courses that are going to be taught and, you know, on and on and on. So it's, it's a tremendously powerful thing. And, and I have no idea why we allow it to happen on such a on such a, a massive scale. Um, over the last couple of years, we've had, I mean, Texas A&M was the famous example. They took a ton of money and they went to court to fight the, um, uh, uh, to, to, to fight, uh, you know, having to reveal exactly how much money they took. And, um, you know. North, so it's basically uh, uh, a propaganda campaign. They're buying off institutions, especially universities and think tanks to shape opinion. Right. Yes, exactly. And also, and also media outlets. I mean, the things that we think are, the issues we think are important, um, or like the average American thinks are important, 
are largely defined by what, by what we read and hear about. So, for example, if we read and hear about uh, Syria all day, then naturally we think, oh, my God, the most important issue in the world is Syria. We have to do something about it. So this is how, um, this is how a kind of constellation of, of forces from think tanks to media to universities um, to, to politicians to, to whatever can kind of line up and all push one particular narrative line. And it leads others, policymakers, citizens to, you know, particular conclusions. You know, it's, it's absolutely part of a propaganda campaign. And, and, uh, and that's one of the things that I want to do in the book is kind of illustrate how you have these multiple, um, multiple parts all acting together and, and pushing in the same direction. And it's funny, as soon as Joe Biden was inaugurated, all of a sudden we started hearing about these problems in Syria and problems in the Middle East. And we started hearing about Russia and, you know, the dissident. And we were supposed to go in and, I guess, help uh, Navalny fight Putin. And all of a sudden you could you could sense these this propaganda campaign bubbling up again. In our last minute here, Dave, talk, uh, where can people get your book and what can people do to to counteract all of this money and all this influence that these hostile countries are, are trying to, to bring to our shores? Well, first of all, you can get the book at my website, which is uh, DaveRaboy.com, D-A-V-E-R-E-A-B-O-I.com. What I talk about in the book is how Russiagate actually helped explain some of the things for, for, for people. You know, it was, it was audacious in scope in terms of, of the absurd narrative and the lies and the man, manipulation. But because it was so audacious in scope, a lot of people woke up to the fact that, hey, you know, not only can our media not be trusted, but the national security folks in, in government who, whose task it is to keep us safe can't be trusted either. That's right. I do think for all of the destruction, the Russia collusion hoax uh, inflicted on a lot of people, it also is a huge eye opener. So, Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Good luck with the book and thanks for all your work on the subject. Thank you. Thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show once again our fearless leaders in washington dc while the country is in crisis and i don't think you would be able to talk to anyone on either side of the political aisle who doesn't agree that COVID, the lockdowns, our schools keep remaining shut down, people losing their jobs, our energy sector being undermined by Biden policies, open borders, transgender policies that threaten girls' sports, among other things. So what are our people in Washington, D.C. doing this week. They are fixating, uh, once again, now almost six weeks later, on the events of January 6th. Not only is that the biggest subject of the Merrick Garland confirmation hearings, as we've already discussed, but also their joint committee hearings today, tomorrow, 
and Thursday on what happened January 6th. Now, of course, all of this serves so many political purposes, but the biggest one is to try to continue to take down Donald Trump and his supporters, also to cover up and criminalize any concerns about legitimate election fraud. And now that we have the Supreme Court, shamefully, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, who refused, who sided with the liberals, and of course, the liberal chief justice of the United States, John Roberts, in denying every single, denying a hearing for every single election fraud case brought before the Supreme Court. This includes cases not even filed by the Trump campaign, by the Pennsylvania Republican Party, by the head of the Arizona Republican Party. Every single lawsuit was declined. They refused to hear them. You're so welcome, Brett Kavanaugh, that we all fought for you. So you can worry about what people in Washington, D.C. and and your friends and family members and colleagues are all going to say about you if, God forbid, you gave a hearing to the egregious lawlessness that took place in Pennsylvania's uh, 2020 presidential election. So we have no help from the Supreme Court. We have no help from the U.S. Department of Justice, even state legislatures who are continuing to press forward with hearings and laws to shore up this really lawless election that we had in 2020 are being demonized. And compared to the people who rioted and handful of people who, yes, caused quite a bit of trouble on January 6th. So instead of our lawmakers confronting the real crises in the country, they are continuing to fuel the idea that this was an armed insurrection, which we'll talk about in a moment, which it wasn't, and all of the things that happened that day at the hands of murderous, crazed, QAnon Trump loyalists at the Capitol for a few hours on January 6th. So that is taking place today uh, on Capitol Hill. They had um, the former House Sergeant at Arms testifying, the former Senate Sergeant at Arms. Of course, all these people resigned after this happened because they were refused help by Democratic and Republican lawmakers that day. So that hear- hearing took place today. We'll continue uh, Wednesday and Thursday. But look, this whole narrative about January 6th, and the timing is actually a little bit ideal. As we know, Nancy Pelosi wants a 9-11-style commission. I'm all for that. I fully support that because, once again, just like Russia collusion, just like the Brett Kavanaugh character assassination, the Covington High School kids, the first impeachment, remember the quid pro quo with the uh, president of Ukraine and Trump allegedly promising something in return for an investigation into the Biden family, which turns out was legitimate. Just like all of the phony narratives, the destructive, divisive stories that the Democrats have come up with, um, January 6th is, is their latest one. But the story's falling apart, and a central part of this story is the alleged murder of Officer Brian Sicknick, who was 24 years old. We were told by the New York Times on January 8th that Sicknick had been murdered by Trump loyalists, that's the term that they used, that he was beaten with a fire extinguisher. That has been the crying call for the people, the propagandists behind January 6th, that these people murdered a police officer. Well, guess what? He wasn't murdered. And the day before the Senate acquitted President Trump, the New York Times very quietly retracted their original account of what happened to Brian Sicknick because other media outlets and 
American Greatness, where I write, and we I was writing about this and, and pushing back on the New York Times story and uh, the, the rest of uh, the entire media, really, political pundits, Democratic and Republican lawmakers, saying that he was murdered. They very quietly not only retracted the story, but retracted who their original anonymous sources were. They said it was two law enforcement officials. Turns out the New York Times said it was someone close to law enforcement, which could have been Nancy Pelosi or anyone. We're getting more information now about Officer Sicknick. And what's so sick and twisted is how his untimely death has been exploited. And now his family is coming out. They still can't get answers either. His mother says they still don't know that she suspects that perhaps he died of a stroke but cannot get any answers the dc medical examiner's office refuses to release any report of course another politicized storyline there and obviously people who are trying to cover up for the democrats in capitol hill who not only manufactured the story but continued to promote it, was also part of the House impeachment trials memo. They specifically said Officer Sicknick was murdered with a fire extinguisher and used the January 8th New York Times article as evidence. Of course, it was retracted, as I just said. But now Officer Sicknick's family uh, is trying to get answers and disputing the original account. And obviously his mother is heartbroken and heartsick. He was only 42 years old. He, he wasn't married. He didn't have children, but a longtime girlfriend. Officer Sicknick's remains were basically laid in state, the Capitol Rotunda, the week before the impeachment trial began. His remains were also then buried at Arlington. So it's strange now that we can't get an official autopsy report on what happened to him. And I'll tell you, of all the really demented <laughs> storylines and fables and fabrications that the Democrats have come up with over the past five years about Donald Trump or anyone associated with Donald Trump using FISA warrants, of course, to go after his campaign associates, using the Justice Department and the Mueller probe to criminalize his associates for nothing. Look at Roger Stone, what happened to him. Now they're trying to go after him again. The exploitation and weaponization of Brian Sicknick's death has to top the list of vile things that the Democrats have done. And another way that they have tried to divide and, and undermine, really destroy the country with their partisanship. So to lie about what happened to a police officer, it really is beyond the pale. And so I'm hoping, against hope, because we know how Republicans roll, they're cowards, I'm hoping that Republicans during these hearings will start to ask questions about what happened to Brian Sicknick and let the public know the truth, because it's finally time, not just for in the best interest of the country, but on behalf of his family as well. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
President Biden, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, and Jill Biden gathered together for a memorial service and a candle lighting ceremony and a moment of silence to commemorate the 500,000 people, allegedly, who have died from uh, coronavirus. Here is what Joe Biden said at that uh, service. The people we lost were extraordinary. They spanned generations. But just like that, so many of them took their final breath alone in America. Okay, so let's set aside for a second Joe Biden's weird fixation on death. He talks, he, he interjects stories about death constantly. Even last week when he was talking about the vaccine production and distribution, he regurgitated one of his campaign lines, which he used over and over, because, of course, he has to be programmed what to say. God forbid he has any new fresh material he wouldn't be able to process it. So he once again talks about how we've lost more people from COVID than we have than we lost in World War II. Such a false equivalence. Um, also, those of you who sat down at the breakfast table and looked across and there was an empty chair, we know your pain. You know, he talks about dark winters. He He's really sort of a morose guy. And I know he suffered a lot of personal loss, but look, a lot of people have suffered loss. So Everyone who's of a certain age has lost someone important to them. Obviously, losing children is different. He's lost two children, including an older son. When your kids are older, they're not just your children. They're your best friends if you're lucky. So we get that. But he continues to weaponize these coronavirus deaths like the Democrats do, like just talked about with Officer Sicknick. But look, 500,000 Americans have not died of coronavirus. We know this from the CDC data. The last study that came out calculated that roughly 6 to 8% of people who died with this virus died solely because of it. We know that there are a host of comorbidities that contribute to, just like anyone with a weakened immune system for any reason, this is a serious virus. Uh, it's lethal. It's among what you would call a severe flu virus. And so, of course, if you have people whose immune systems are already compromised, obviously, if you're an older person, which we know the death rate is much higher for people over 70, under 70 to 65, you have a 99.7% survival rate. But for Joe Biden to put on these theatrics again, and he did this during the inauguration festivities. Well, he did, and Kamala Harris did because he had to go take a nap or something. To continue these optics and these theatrics is all intended to keep this pandemic, which is gone. You see the, sp the spikes that we had, that we have every year with a severe respiratory virus, flu every single year, the so-called COVID, um, followed the same spikes. So here in America, as in most of the world, the virus is now dormant. It will kick back up again in the hotter states in the summer when people go outside. And it's normal, of course, the flu season, October through February, early March. So it is so wrong of Joe Biden and the Democrats and everyone to continue to tell people that 500,000 people died of this virus when they didn't. We also know, thank you, Andrew Cuomo and other Democratic governors who did this, that at least a third of the fatalities related to coronavirus, COVID, 
occurred in nursing homes. In some states, that figure is as high as 50 to 60 percent. That is the inhumanity and the cruelty of how our political leadership has handled coronavirus. Here we took healthy kids. They're still out of school, now going on almost a year. We took tens of millions of healthy school children who actually should have been in the classroom, helped build the herd immunity to this because they are not hosts to this virus. They actually help kill off the virus in certain environments. While we left the most vulnerable, like Joe Biden just said, people dying alone. Well, why were they doing that? They were dying alone because nursing homes did not have the proper protection. You had governors like Andrew Cuomo and others who instructed long-term care facilities to accept infected patients. They didn't have proper protocols for people going into the facility's employees. And of course, as is still happening today, tragically, in nursing homes and hospitals, people dying alone of any sort of of disease because their loved ones cannot be with them. But here's Joe Biden once again using this because, of course, keeping this pandemic alive serves a lot of political ends for him, not the least of which gives him a reason to only come out in public about 15 minutes a day, not meet with the American public, not meet with lawmakers, not have a press conference. So if anyone thinks that this hysteria is going away anytime soon, it's not. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Dinesh D'Souza has to be one of the hardest working people in the business and has been for decades. In 1991, I read his book, A Liberal Education. I had just graduated from college, not one of the hoity-toity colleges, universities he talked about in his book, but a public university in central Illinois. So I really had no idea what was happening on campuses across the country, but how prescient was that book? Um, He talked about how the academic world was trying to get rid of the great books and, you know, infiltrate kids' minds about racism and sexism and white supremacy, all this kind of things we're hearing about now. So it's such, it's like surreal for me to be in communication with Dinesh D'Souza, but also to have him on the show today. So Dinesh, welcome. Hey, Julie. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Dinesh, you and I have mutual, I wouldn't say friends, I I know some of them used to be your friends, but the Never Trumpers, and you had just a hilarious, you have a daily podcast now, people should check it out, but you had a hilarious riff on National Review, the day that Rush Limbaugh passed away, a columnist at National Review really taking down Rush Limbaugh, demeaning him in a way, and so I want you to relay that to to our listeners because it was so spot on. Well, this was a guy named uh, Michael uh, Doherty, Michael Brendan Doherty. It was an article kind of reeking with snobbery and particularly, I thought, inappropriate and offensive because it was published right on the occasion of Russia's death. But the theme of it was, you know, we intellectual conservatives have never really liked Rush Limbaugh. In fact, he's, he pushes us away from the Republican Party. Uh, we like people like the British philosopher Roger Scruton. Uh, and <laughs> this guy Doherty was talking about a, a witticism by Roger Scruton uh, that, uh, that involved, um, involved the philosopher Peter Singer. I mean, highly sort of inside baseball type of stuff. And I'm thinking, you know what's so strange? It's not just that Rush 
speaks to the common man. It's not just that Rush speaks in a language that, for example, even William F. Buckley never managed, a, a language accessible to most people in the country, but Rush is, was also in a way smarter. If you, if you focus on, just take the issue of civil rights, which I've written about now for 25 years, the arguments that Rush makes are much more sophisticated and effective than the arguments that National Review ever made. So uh, Rush, for example, says, look, uh, you know, we're talking about all these horrors of slavery and racism and racial terrorism and lynching. Well, the Democratic Party was behind all those things. They were the ones who did it. Don't blame America. Don't even blame the South. Blame the actual political party that was perpetrating these evils. Now, think of how effective that is. Now, compare this with National Review, which, if you look at its stances on civil rights over the years, have basically been things like this. Let's go really slow on civil rights because social change should be organic and not sudden. Well, this is not a winning argument. If something is wrong, you should stop it, you know. Or National Review says we should be respectful of tradition. Slavery was a tradition. Anti-Semitism is a tradition. There obviously are good and bad traditions. So I kind of go down these National Review arguments, which I'm very familiar with over the years. I've kind of grown up with National Review. And I, the point I'm trying to make is that even on the issue of intellectual sophistication, Rush has you guys completely beat. <laughs> Isn't it part of these never Trumpers contempt for the new base of the Republican Party is that it, they, they agree with Hillary Clinton that a lot of the MAGA types are deplorables. They don't want the working class folks in the Republican Party. They really look down on them. And so. A lot of the pot shots people like Doherty and others were taking at Rush on the establishment right. He's sort of a pass through to the millions of really new Republican voters. Uh, we saw this just play out. It, there's like an eight point uptick in working class voters who identify with the Republican Party. He was just sort of the proxy now for expressing their contempt once again for the Trump deplorables. You know, Julie, I, I agree with you. I think there's a distaste, but I also think that there is a certain kind of weird um, desire on the part of many of these never Trumper types to be a member of a very small club. Many years ago, um, the writer Whitaker Chambers, who used to, you know, used to be a communist and he was kind of moving to the right, but he wrote an essay about why he's not a conservative. And he goes, the reason I'm not a conservative, I don't call myself that, is he goes, he says, to me, a conservative, it's kind of like you walk into one of these old furniture uh, sales rooms, uh, which, which is selling all kinds of old antiques and things. And there's some old guy at the back, you know, and he goes and you realize everything is really unattractively presented. You don't really feel like buying anything. And he goes, but then you look at the guy and the guy is so disinterested that you realize he doesn't even want to sell. He actually kind of lovingly walks around and plays with these items. But so the whole thing is kind of a almost a, an obsessive cult in which by and large people want to stay in a small club. They don't really want new members of the club. They pretend like they do, but they're not out recruiting them and they don't really like anyone in there. So it's almost like a lot of these conservatives, like the old National Review where everybody could kind of meet in Faoni's restaurant and there are like 18 people who make inside jokes, you know, and then suddenly all these new people show up and go, what are you people even talking about? You don't make any sense, you know. So I think for them, it's all about this sort of clubbishness and the big, wide, tented Republican Party doesn't suit them all that well. 
Now, Dinesh, you've known these people for decades. You know, you rolled with, not rolled with them, but you know the National Review crowd, the old Weekly Standard crowd, the commentary people, all the, you know, the think tankers. Where do these people go now? I mean, okay, they can't take pot shots at Trump really anymore, Rush. I guess they they are they can't do anything with Biden. Apparently, he's off limits because they all supported him. So what do they do now? Well, they don't have many places to go, partly because most of them don't have any talent. Now, I, I, I would be <laughs> fair to say that their, their parents did, you know. I mean, yes. we talked about Bill Crystal on my podcast, you and I did. Now, Irving Crystal and, and Gertrude Himmelfarb had a lot of talent. Irving Crystal was just a beautiful, lyrical writer. Uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb, a well-established, well-respected historian, written a whole bunch of great books on the Victorian age. But now you look at Bill Crystal. I mean, I don't even know if Bill Crystal has written a book. Um, and so this is a guy whose basic day is devoted to, he probably takes half a day to compose a tweet and the other <laughs> half of a day to sit at like the local Morton's restaurant and, and pontificate. Um, and even his pontificating style is essentially one of these things where he takes events that are surprising that, and then he basically pretends like he knew it all along. So if you say to Bill something like 9-11, he goes, well, yeah, you know, the Muslims, you know, they've been doing this stuff since the seventh century, you know. <laughs> it's their shtick. Dinesh, thanks so much. Where can people find your podcast? Well, the podcast is all over the place, but on audio, you can find it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or even on Google. That's great. Dinesh, thanks so much. Thank you, Julie. Bye-bye. Show.com. If there's any good news about COVID-19 and our continued lockdown quarantine kids out of school, it's that it looks like the country is suffering from a bit of Fauci fatigue, which is great news. He if you saw anyone watched him on the Sunday shows over the weekend, and of course he's not looking at the data, as he says all the time, he is too busy primping for green rooms, or I'm sure he has a big fancy green room in his house somewhere by now. He was on at least three Sunday shows over the weekend, and within the course of a few hours, he backpedaled on what he had said on an earlier show. This guy cannot even keep his story straight. One of the biggest failures of Donald Trump's presidency was keeping Anthony Fauci on board, making him the face of the coronavirus task force, and letting this clown, this fraud, now he's just, all he does is preen for the cameras, take control of how the entire country handled this virus. Here's a little clip. Maybe you can make sense of this. I, I have no idea what he's talking about here. The data look really quite impressive that if you've been infected and then you get a single dose, the boost that you get with that single dose is really enormous. Huh? What is what is he talking about? He there's going to be a booster. You could take one. You can take two vaccines. You're going to have to take more next fall. You're going to have to do this every single year. It's <laughs> who knows what this guy is talking about, but it's finally nice to see people at least on the right. Uh, people like Ben Shapiro, I just heard this from Megan McCain, who are 
well, now demanding that he gets fired. He's not going to get fired because Joe Biden uses him as his front man. Whenever Joe Biden, last week when he was talking about the vaccines, he was at the Pfizer uh, manufacturing plant, and he said, even Dr. Fauci said, the vaccines are safe. Well, what? how does he know this? Anthony Fauci doesn't know any more about the safety of these vaccines than you or I know. He continues to use Anthony Fauci. The media continues to use him. But I think that people are starting to really tune him out and hopefully start to look back at all the terrible advice he gave from the very beginning. I called in early April that Donald Trump should get rid of Anthony Fauci for the single reason that he took the disastrous models from the U.K. and from the Gates Foundation, um, uh, uh, modeling out of the University of Washington that said, remember, we were going to have 2 million people die of COVID, and we were going to have our ICUs were going to be overflowed. People were going to be dying in line trying to get into the emergency room. Uh, We were going to have young people dying, which, of course, is not the case. This hasn't happened at all. But unfortunately, like I said, Donald Trump kept him on, kept Deborah Burks on, kept Robert Redfield, head of the CDC, who gave us all of this catastrophic guidance that unfortunately is still in place. So can we all get together finally as far as coronavirus and agree that Anthony Fauci never had any idea what he's talking about, still has no idea what he's talking about, and at 80 years old, he should go back to his big, beautiful house and retire. This is the Dan Proft Show.